Okay, I think we're live now. Um, I hope I'm not starting too early. Um, so I'd like to say welcome to Ask an Austrian, episode 11. This is Stefan Kinsella. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Um, <clears throat> I was asked to do this by Liam McCollum, and I'm happy to do it. And he sent me <clears throat> a list of some of the questions that have been received, and I have skimmed through them and I'm going to try to answer a few of those. And uh, I don't know if I'll be able to see any, any live comments or feedback other than the ones I've got, but if not, I'll just go ahead and start. So I'm uh, Stefan Kinsella. I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm a, a patent attorney and also a libertarian, longtime libertarian and Austrian. Uh, been affiliated with the Mises Institute uh, since 94. And uh, <clears throat> have been an Austrian and uh, libertarian ever since, uh, well, before that time, um, ever since law school, I would say. So um, uh, I've written quite a deal, a, a lot, on various libertarian legal theory topics, especially intellectual property and rights theory and uh, other, other matters. So some of the questions are about intellectual property because <laughs> some people must know of my, my specialty in that area. Okay, so first question. Um, Carson Rosander, can you explain the history of the term intellectual property and how it evolved? How can I use that to explain it's not like traditional property? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, so what happened was what we have, the, the term intellectual property, sometimes called industrial property in Europe, um, refers to a set of legal rights that, that have something to do with, with, uh, ideas or creativity. Um, so the primary types of intellectual property laws are patent law, which covers inventions, <clears throat> excuse me, copyright, copyright, which covers um, uh, artistic creative works and trademark, which, you know, identifies a source of goods and uh, trade secrets, which is uh, useful, uh, proprietary information that's useful to you, gives you a competitive advantage so long as it's kept secret. And then there are other special types of IP. Um, I actually think defamation law should be considered a type of IP because its justification is very similar to that of trademark rights, which is the idea that you have some kind of property right in the value of your reputation. That's kind of the underlying theme of both um, um, trademark law and, um, and uh, defamation law. And then there are special things like database rights and moral rights and boat hull designs and semiconductor mask works. Um, most of them created by statute, um, although trademark and trade secret law did evolve on the common law, on the free market, uh, on the, in the private court system or in the, in the decentralized court system. I shouldn't say private. Um, uh, the, the two primary forms of what we call now IP or patent and copyright, and they originated um, in, in Europe, um, um, and they were, they were never called property. They were called uh, monopolies or privileges. In fact, the patent, the modern patent system that we have now stems back from the statute of monopolies in 1623 in England. So they actually called the monopolies. Um, Thomas Jefferson, when the, uh, so the constitution in the U.S. was ratified in 1789, and when the Bill of Rights was being uh, drafted by Madison, um, which was eventually ratified two years later in 1791, Thomas Jefferson uh, in Paris, sent a letter to Madison, and he proposed 
modifying the copyright and patent clause, which was in the original constitution, which gave Congress the authority to enact co copyright and patent law. Um, he, he, re he recommended limiting monopolies uh, to a certain period of time. Now, this was never adopted, but he called them monopolies because this was the common term. <clears throat> so they were never thought of as property uh, or called property. But what happened was um, patent and copyright took hold in the U.S. because of the Constitution's grant, which basically put it in there, in there for a couple of reasons. It, it was in there because it, it was the law in England, and, um, and uh, the Statute of Anne of England in 1710 uh, was where copyright came from. And the statute – by the way, copyright is used originally for censorship, um, and patents were state grants of monopoly privilege that protected you from competition. So that's where these laws came from. And I think that the reason they were put in the Constitution was because – uh, copyright protects authors and patents protect inventors. And who are the authors and inventors? Well, the founders of the Constitution. These were the smart guys, the, the innovative guys, the writers, the publishers. So, of course, they wanted these things to protect themselves. So they didn't give any thought to not including that. So that's why it was in there. Well, in the 1800s, um, uh, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, international trade, um, a lot of free market economists started objecting to these grants of state grants of monopoly privilege, uh, patent and copyright. And in response, the entrenched industry industries like certain industries that were dependent upon patents um, and the um, and the publishing industry, which was dependent upon copyright, um, defended the state grant of these monopoly privileges by saying that they're not monopoly privilege grants. They're just, in, they're just property rights. So it was just a defensive move. Um, and then the response to that was, well, how can you have a property right that expires in 20 years or whatever? Because regular property rights never expire. And then the response to that was, well, it's a special type of property. It's intellectual property. And so the term stuck. And once you call something property, Everyone likes it. So they use the word property because property had a positive connotation. And this is uh, actually uh, um, um, spelled out in, in, a, his, in a vast uh, historical study by Fritz Macklop in the 50s, uh, where he explains exactly why this word started being used. So it is a deceptive term. It's a dishonest and disingenuous term. Um, it would be like saying you can't, uh, you can't modify the, the social security system because people have a vested property right in getting their future income streams. Or you can't modify the welfare system or Obamacare because it's a property right. Anything that someone's used to getting, some benefit someone's used to getting from government fiat or grant, um, any kind of welfare payment, they could you can call it a property right, but it's actually not a property right. Property rights are, are, um, um, are the right to control scarce resources. And um, patent and copyrights actually undercut and undermine property rights. So they're anti-property rights. Um, they're basically socialistic. Okay. So that's the first question. Have you found, what have you found to, this will be a quick one, Kevin Rossander again, what have you found to be the best way to sell your position on IP to conservatives? Um, nothing, <laughs> nothing works. Um, in fact, every single congressman that I'm aware of, including the so-called good ones, Rand Paul, uh, Justin Amash, when he was in there, um, uh, Massey, uh, they all seem to at least silently acquiesce or explicitly say things like China is stealing our IP and it's important to protect intellectual property, blah, blah, blah. 
every I don't think there's a single congressman ever in the history of the country, at least not now, uh, in the Senate or the Congress who um, who um, opposes patent and copyright um, in principle. I don't think there's a single one who wants to go back to the original system, which uh, Tom Bell, libertarian legal scholar, uh, calls the founder's copyright. He argues we should go back to the original type of copyright we had in the beginning with the terms for about 28 years, 14 and 28 years, instead of life of the author plus 70 years, which we have now. Uh, so there's there's just simply zero. The, the only good argument, and everyone, no one contradicts this argument, but they, they just don't, they're not interested in it. But the, you could make it, uh, some conservatives pretend to have uh, a fealty to the Constitution. And if you point out that um, the Supreme Court has explicitly recognized that um, <clears throat> That the First Amendment is, quote, in tension with copyright because copyright, like, literally prevents you from publishing words on paper. So it, it leads to censorship of, of free speech and freedom of the press. So the First Amendment and the Copyright Act are in conflict with each other. So what the court does is they say, well, we have the Copyright Clause in 1789 and the Copyright Act in 1790, and then we have the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment in 1791. And those clauses are in tension. They say the same thing, by the way, about um, antitrust law, which is, of course, unconstitutional, but the antitrust law and the patent law, because the patent law grants monopolies and the antitrust law attempts to stop monopolies. So they say there's a tension. So whenever they find a tension, what that means is the law is incoherent and schizophrenic and in conflict with itself because it's not coherent and just law. It's arbitrary law enacted by uh, by a committee of bureaucrats, and there's no reason to expect paragraph one to be compatible with paragraph 10. They can contradict each other, and they do. And so when the courts have this, then the courts have to try to balance the competing problems, except that there's a statutory canon and a constitutional interpretation canon, which says that a later statute or a later constitutional provision is takes priority over an earlier one if there's a conflict. This is why we can amend law. This is why um, uh, prohibition was ended. So the Constitution was amended to outlaw alcohol, and then a few years later, it was amended to repeal that. Now, why is out? Why is prohibition repealed? Because the amendment repealing it came later, right? Now, th the First Amendment was ratified by a separate Congress two years later in 1791 than the one that ratified the Constitution in 1789. And so if there's a conflict between the First Amendment and the, and the Copyright Act, and there is, the Supreme Court has acknowledged this. Um, I mean, we have a pretty absolutist First Amendment, and yet the court allows uh, courts to issue injunctions to ban or destroy published books or prevent books from being published which is a clear violation of the First Amendment. So you, the only argument I think that could make sense is this one, but it's kind of legalistic and, it, and people's eyes glaze over and they just say, well, they were both ratified around the same time. <laughs> That's not how it works. You know, you can pass a law one year and repeal it two years later, which is what I think happened. Now it was unintentional, but still, if there's a conflict between the First Amendment and the Copyright Act, I think that the First Amendment has to prevail, which means I think the, the, the copyright law is completely unconstitutional. Not to mention, it also violates other parts of the Bill of Rights, like the Eighth Amendment uh, ban on, on cruel, and or cruel and unusual punishment, because statutory damages for copyright violations are 
like 75,000 or 150,000 per active infringement, which could lead to literally billions of dollars of damages for not actually harming anyone. So it's clearly unconstitutional uh, by several, um, um, in several respects. And some similar arguments could be made about patent and trademark law. Trademark law is unconstitutional, by the way, federal trademark law, because there's no power authorized in the constitution to even enact that. Um, same thing with federal aspects of trade secret law. The Constitution only authorizes patent and copyright law. It does not authorize trademark law, which is why federal trademark law doesn't totally preempt the field and their state trademark law in a, in a, in a, on the side of in addition. Okay, so, but I haven't found that argument work very well either. No one, no one debunks it or even tries to. They just, they sort of don't want to hear it. It's like an embarrassing inconvenience that the Constitution, the First Amendment bans the Copyright Act because they like it and they, they just don't want to hear it. So conservatives are totally um, helpless on this issue, and liberals are, by the way, too. Uh, lefties are uh, – some left libertarians are good on this issue, and Austrians are good on this issue, and anarchists are good on this issue, Rothbardians are good on this issue. Utilitarian libertarians and Randians are weak or horrible on this issue, and um, – but lefties in general, uh, you know, they tend to favor free software licenses and things like that and creative commons, but they're not opposed to trademark, patent, and copyright. Uh, in principle. In fact, they all are shouting all the time about China stealing our IP. And I think there's another question later, which brings this up, and I'll get to that later. Uh, it's totally BS that China steals our IP. It's, it's actually literally legally untrue and factually untrue. Okay, Harrison, do you think the free market – let me see what time it is here. Do you think the free market could develop some sort of protection for IP? Do you think blockchain might be a free market solution to IP? No, and I'll give you my opinions here. I'm very opinionated on this, and some of this is just my opinion. I don't pretend to be 100% right, but this is my, my take on it. Well, on the first part, I'm, I'm confident. The, the second question about blockchain uh, I'm more is more of an opinion. Um, if you want to be technical, no. It's impossible to protect IP on the free market because intellectual property um, – is by its nature an infringement of property rights. It's, it's what we call a negative servitude so or negative easement. So in simple, in simple terms, the nature of every right, so every right is a human right, and every human right is a property right. That's what rights are. Rights just are the legally recognized right to control a scarce resource. And by that, we mean the type of resource over which there can be conflict. That's why you need the right to control it, because if you don't have the right to control it, Someone else can take it from you. If it's the type of thing that someone can take and you still have it, then they're not really taking it. They're just copying it, and it's not a scarce resource that rights can even apply to. Every right is a property right, and every right is enforceable by the law, by the legal system. But enforceable means force, physical force. You can only apply physical force to real things. You know, I can grab a table or a bottle or a chair, but I can't grab a ghost because they're intangible, right? Or I can't grab an idea. Force can only be applied to things that can receive force, which are material objects. So all property rights are enforceable, and all property rights must therefore necessarily um, be a right to the control of a scarce resource. So when you have a law like a patent or a copyright law, and then when they're mislabeled as intellectual property rights, it confuses everyone. And people think, well, this is a law that establishes a right to an idea, right? Some people say it's not about ideas. It's about material instantiations of ideas. Look, I'm a patent lawyer. I can tell you there's no difference in these terms. They're all the same loosey-goosey, vague, immaterial nonsense. But 
whether you call it a material instantiation of an idea or whatever. But the point is a patent and copyright law purports to give you people a right to their intellectual creations, right? So a novel or a song or a painting or an invention for the, in the case of patents. And these things are simply not material objects. They are always information that has to be embedded in some other object because information can't just be floating out there. It has to be stored somewhere. If it's in your memory, then it's in, it's, 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 it's in the way the synapses in your brain are arranged, right? If it's on a, on a CD-ROM, it's the way the, the pits and the lands are arranged on that disk. If it's on a magnetic tape, it's the way the magnetic tape is oriented on that disk, right? If it's on a record or, a, or if it's on a book, it's the way the ink is arranged. So information is always just the impatterning or the arranging of an underlying material object. But that underlying material object is already owned by some owner according to the normal rules of private property rights, which is homesteading and contract, right? Original appropriation and contract. That's how we determine who owns a resource by those rules. Um, and so um, whenever you have a law that says someone has a right to this invention, what that really means, where the rubber hits the road, right? Libertarians always say that, you know. All laws are really enforced at the point of a gun, right? What, what they're getting at there is that it's not the words that matter. It's the enforcement action that happens to back them up, right? That's when it – look, if the government had all these laws but they never enforced it, we wouldn't care. If the government said you owe 45% of your income in taxes but they didn't enforce it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind it. I wouldn't mind this socialist government if they didn't actually enforce it. What matters is when they use force against my resources to take them from me, right? And so – if you have a, a copyright or a patent, then you can go to a government court and they will use physical force of government goons to come and seize um, the property of the person that's infringing the, 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 the so-called IP right. So what that would mean is if I have a copyright, I can use force to prevent you from using your printing press and your paper and your ink to print this book. Or I can use force of the government force through an injunction or through the threat of jail time or, or monetary damages to prevent you from using your own factory and your own raw materials to make a device shaped in a certain way. Now, that type of right in the law is called a negative easement. When someone gains the right to prevent you from using your property in the way you want, that's called a negative easement or a negative servitude. And there's nothing wrong in principle with negative easements and servitudes. This is what is used when people have um, um, uh, restrictive covenants or homeowners associations, and they um, <clears throat> all the neighbors sign an agreement saying that they will only use their homes for certain residential purposes, and they will not use them for certain commercial purposes, let's say, or they won't build a house more than three stories, or they won't uh, paint the house orange or something like that. So they actually, by contract, they consent to giving a part of their property right away to all of their neighbors. They're granting a negative easement, so they're separating a part of their property rights and giving to their neighbors, and they're getting the one in return, and they think it's useful to have certain controls over their standard of living or whatever. Now, the reason that is fine is because it's consented to, right? It's contractual, just like if a man and woman have sex and they agree to it. There's nothing wrong with that because they both consented. They're both using their bodies the way they see fit and allowing someone to use their own body. But if a man rapes a woman, it's it's rape because she didn't consent. The, the girl didn't consent. 
this is what a, a negative easement is in the in the so patent and copyrights are basically disguised grants of negative easements. They're not called that, but that's what they are in in an actual legal fact. Um, and the problem is that the person who is having the negative right taken from them never consented to it. It's just a unilateral taking by the state. So the state takes part of your property and gives it to the patent holder or the copyright holder. So it's, it's, a, it's a taking of property right. So that, that's the fundamental problem with um, with patent and copyright. Okay. And so the reason that you can't have a market solution to this is because the free market can only respect private property rights. Now, I think what you may be getting at is could there other be other mechanisms that satisfy some of the same concerns that artistic creators and inventors have that go to the patent and copyright system now? And of course that's true, but they do that even now. I mean, people use all kinds of mechanisms um, to try to um, um, overcome the problem of competition, which can sometimes come more quickly when a, a major part of the value of the, of the, the service or the, thing you're selling lies in its um, the way it's in pattern. Like if I'm selling books, it's easy for someone to knock me off and make a copy of the book. So I might have to resort to certain methods to get around that. You could have non-disclosure agreements. You can have um, um, you could have industry-wide cartels and things if the antitrust law permitted it, which would which would allow some of these things to, uh, uh, to happen. So the law actually blocks some private mechanisms that that could emerge. Uh, but I think, by and large, it's very difficult to rest your business model on the idea that you're going to be able to keep information from spreading because it's pretty much impossible to keep information from spreading. Because even if you have only one defector, you have you have 10, 10 million customers and they've all signed an agreement inexplicably because why would you sign an agreement um, when you buy a product? Why would you sign an agreement um, not to use not to copy it or, or use the information in it? On the on the on um, um, with contractual damages in the millions of dollars, if you violate that, why would you do that? <laughs> um, so I don't think they're practical. I don't think many customers would agree to that. Um, you know, if I if, if I was going to buy a book on Amazon in a free market, and Amazon said you have to sign this contract, promising never to use the ideas in the book, or you might be liable for a million dollars in damages. I would just go to a pirated website. I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy the book. So these models hurt the the few customers that are not pirating. So I don't think they're feasible. But even if they were feasible, if you just have one defector who who, who takes the information and puts it on the internet anonymously, now billions of people can access that information, and they never signed a contract. So um, this is the thing. There's a difference in the law between NREM rights, which are property rights, which are property rights good against the world. You don't have to have a, an agreement with someone. Like my property right in my home or my body or my car is an in-rem right, which means no one has the right to use it without my permission. Whereas um, other types of rights are in persona. They're just between the parties to an agreement. Like you and I can have an agreement. Um, um, hey, I won't compete with you for a year in, uh, in this field or I won't do this to my house. But those rights don't extend to third parties. There's no privity of contract. So even if I have an obligation not to copy your book, but I, I violate that promise and I, I upload it to the internet, everyone else reading that hasn't signed the agreement. Um, so it, it just wouldn't work. Uh, the second part of the question uh, about blockchain, I'm extremely skeptical of any use of blockchain except as a backbone for Bitcoin itself. Uh, I think Bitcoin is 
possibly and hopefully the, the, the money of the future. I think there's only need for one money. I think all the other monies are shit coins, all of them. Um, and I think blockchain is a horribly inefficient um, uh, database, but it's worth having an inefficient database for the one function it, it's necessary for, which is the backbone of the reserve currency. Um, I don't see any use. Uh, now, I, I'm short of imagination, so I'm skeptical of smart contracts, skeptical of AI. I'm skeptical of um, um, uh, NFTs. <laughs> I'm skeptical of uh, using using the blockchain to restore rec property records. I think it's all I think it's all bullshit, to be honest. Uh, I think it's just vaporware and hype, and I think we should just focus on what blockchain is for. It's to be the backbone of Bitcoin. <laughs> um, anyway, that idea assumes that it's sort of there, – there were some free market like, like the Laura, Morris and Linda Tannehill who were some of the earlier anarchists, the Market for Liberty people. Um, who were kind of objectivist influenced anarchists. So because they were objectivist influenced, they believed in IP, but they knew the state couldn't enforce it. So they tried to come up with ways that it could be enforced on the free market. But these people always never, they never really understand the nature of IP or how it really works. And so it's just pie in the sky nonsense. Um, it's like saying, um, you know, could we have a, could we have taxation or the Americans with Disabilities Act or the drug war um, without, um, the state. No, you can't. Um, that's one reason we want the state. <laughs> we want to get rid of the state. Okay. Michael, what do you think about Rothbard's argument for natural law and the ethics of liberty? Well, I think that it's a it's a pretty good summary and libertarian-oriented framing of the classical natural rights and natural law arguments. Um and he uses it in service of basically um, explaining and setting out in a kind of consistent, comprehensive, systematic fashion the libertarian um, uh, ideas. And so I think in that way, it's brilliant. Um, it's not without holes, and he was kind of early and operating without a net, so to speak. Um, and I do think that some of the criticisms of the natural uh, law, natural rights tradition by Rothbard's um, – colleague and sort of um, protege Hans Hermann Hoppe later, which by the way, Rothbard actually um, uh, commended and agreed with. So Hoppe basically came up with a, a, a different newer form of the argument for libertarian rights. Um, he said you could think of it as a new type of natural rights, but it's not the, the natural law tradition. The, the main criticism from Hoppe, which is kind of um, little Humean, little Kantian, it's this is-ought gap. It's the idea that you can't get a norm or a right or an, or, or an ought or a should from, from a descriptive factual statement, from an is statement. You can't get an ought from an is. It's a logical problem, which Hume pointed out. And I actually – I agree with this, and I think that's one problem of the natural law argument is they try to say what human nature is and then just all of a sudden deduce – because the way we are, here's how we should be. But you can't that's, – that's a logically unbridgeable uh, gap. Um, Hoppe sidesteps that with his argumentation ethics, uh, and Rothbard said, oh, Hoppe's done it. He sort of totally improved my approach. Um, the, the second problem with the natural law argument, according to Hoppe, which I'm also sympathetic to, is that um, 
uh, even if you ignore the is ought problem, um, that natural law is sort of vague and amorphous. I mean, human nature is pretty vague and, and amorphous. So it's, it's not going to get you very many concrete prescriptions or normative details. So it won't get you too far. I mean, you might say be virtuous, but it, it's not going to give you concrete details about what the law should be, something like that. Now, there are some smart, uh, even anarchist, uh, Arist neo-Aristotelians like um, uh, my friend Jeff Allen Ploche and Roderick Long, who argue that you can sort of sidestep the is-ought problem with the natural law argument by not going from an an is to an ought, but going from a sense to a then. So they call it uh, so. The, the, so the categorical imperative is like an absolute statement that, that is true no matter what. And the hypothetical is just hypothetical, like if you want peace and prosperity. So this is the consequentialist or utilitarian approach like of Mises. Um, if you want peace and prosperity, then you should have um, um, a free market, private property rights, right? If you understand economics, right? So that's a consequentialist or pragmatic approach, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, but um, – uh, but it's not an absolute case because what if the if is not satisfied? What if you don't want peace and prosperity, right? So some people crave this absolute knockdown argument. So if you make a categorical argument, then you're breaching the is-ought gap. But if you make an if-then statement, you're not you're not satisfying the need of people to have a definitive statement. So there's an in-between position, which uh, Roderick Long talks about and, and my friend Ploche talks about. And they call it the assertoric hypothetical, which is since then, like – since we do value peace and prosperity, then we should have a free market. Now, I think that actually they would deny this, but I think it dovetails with Hoppe's argumentation ethics, which is similar. Since we unavoidably value the presuppositions of discourse, then we should favor a libertarian political order because that's the only way to implement it. So it's a very similar structure. So uh, that's enough about that. Uh, Aaron Harris. Um, what would be the most significant changes in society if IP laws were abolished? Is there a particular way it should be phased out? Well, first of all, no. I do think you could make an argument for some programs to be phased out, like maybe social security, something like that. It's such a mess, right? Um, but other programs are purely, totally destructive and evil, and they should be abolished immediately if we could, like the drug war. Like, If we could abolish the drug war, would you want to do it over 10 years or do it immediately? You would do it immediately. Right. Um, and the same thing with the patent and copyright system. They do no good whatsoever, so they, they should not be phased out. Now, if they were phased out, I'd be I'd be happy with that. But it'd be better to abolish them immediately. Total abolition. Uh, there is no reason to, to phase them out whatsoever. Uh, the most significant change is, well, it's hard to predict what society would look like without the shackles of IP because IP is pervasive. We don't even notice it. It's in so many laws and customs, um, and it's, it's international because the U.S. and the West have pushed – the patent and copyright system, which is primarily to the benefit of three big West American industries, Hollywood, the music industry, and pharmaceuticals. <laughs> the entire world has adopted at the arm twisting of America through copy copyright and patent treaties, sim systems similar to even, you know, even Russia and North Korea and China have IP. Everyone says China's stealing IP. China has IP all too. There are some idiot patent lawyers worrying that China is doing a better job of enforcing their patents now. At the same time, they're accusing China of disrespecting Western norms about IP. They're totally incoherent, totally blathering, uh, 
shills. Um, so the most significant change, I think we'd have a lot more innovation because people would be free to adopt whatever. Look, you, you have laser printers and safety measures in cars and people have to do their own proprietary things and come up with their own solutions that they can't use this better approach somewhere there. If no, there was no patent law, people could just do whatever they wanted. They would have so much more freedom to tinker and experiment, adopt the best of this product here and that one there. So I think innovation would in, in, in increase enormously. And, the, the, and then the wealth of the human race would increase exponentially because um, it would be um, uh, cumulative over time, right? That's why I think patent laws though is the worst, one of the worst laws we have. It's, it's, it'd be more important. It would be more... Uh, uh, it'd be better to get rid of patent law before copyright law, although copyright law is horrible, too, and it lasts longer. And in copyright, uh, the field of artistic creativity, music, movies, documentaries, art, everything would change. You wouldn't need rights. People could say what they wanted. So you'd have a flourishing of free expression and, uh, and, and creativity. So I think it would be great all around. Some people would lose. The entrenched people and business models, business models would change. Some people would do better. So it's just, a, it's just a free market. We would return to a free market. Okay. Chris Forrest, do you think it's fair to say that public property such as roads, libraries, are rightfully owned by the taxpayer as restitution for the aggression committed against them by the state, as well as the companies that build these things, seeing there's guilty of possession of stolen money? Yeah, so I, I get the question. Um, some libertarians have this odd position that government property is unowned. And therefore, anyone who storms into it, like you know, bums in the library, they they can homestead it because it's actually an, an unowned thing. I think that's ridiculous. I think that owned, I think that used property is being used by state state agents is actually owned. Um, uh, but the natural owner are the people that the government owes reparations to, which are the taxpayers. So if the government <laughs> takes my home by eminent domain, and then they give me some money from the taxpayers to compensate me for it. They own a home, which I owned before. It's not; It didn't become unowned. The natural owner in that case, I think, is the taxpayers because I've already been compensated. Now, if they take it from me and they don't compensate me, then I still own it, right? Um, so I think that all the citizens in the country have basically like a, a pro rata share on government assets. Now, it's not enough to compensate us even if we disbanded the government because they've been wasteful. We'll get a penny on the dollar. But yeah, all the national forests, all the roads, all the government facilities, the natural owners are the citizens who the government owes money to. Um, you could argue that some of the some of the virgin forests that the government owns and prevents from being used are unowned. The government's sort of preventing them from being homesteaded. So the government should not prevent them from being homesteaded. But for most property, um, it's, it's already owned. Okay, Zach Sklar's why deontological liberty are consequentialist arguments wrong or just not as good as natural rights arguments? Is it fair to use consequentialist arguments to back up your ideas based on deontological libertarianism? Well, so the way I uh, – I don't find the term deontological that useful because it confuses everyone. <laughs> Some people don't even understand ontology. Now they're talking about deontology. Which are not even related, um, not even not even etymologically. It, um, but um, 
I'm of the mind that we live in a world where I, I'm I'm influenced by Rand. I was a Rand in at one point, uh, uh, and I still retain some of the things she she uh, I learned from her. One of which was the moral is the practical. Um, the whole purpose of morality and and norms and property rights and rules is is, is to let people live a good life, uh, a just life, and a prosperous and a peaceful, successful life. So you know it's like the elephant. You know, a blind man, you know, one guy feels the trunk, one feels the tusk, one feels the leg, and they think they're looking at different things, but they're still looking at the same elephant, the same reality, just from a different perspective. And I think that we live in one reality, and even though the consequentialist approach or the pragmatic or the practical approach, which is not the same, by the way, as utilitarian. I view utilitarianism as Randy Barnett does in his introduction to the structure of liberty, um, which is a great book, um, as um, – uh, a subset of consequentialism. So consequentialism in general just means that you care about the consequences of policies. Um, but utilitarianism is a sp specific implementation of that. And of course, utilitarianism is flawed for all the reasons that Austrians have pointed out. Uh, value is not cardinal. Um, you, know, you can't compare it interpersonally. You can't sum it up and weigh it and that kind of stuff. But consequentialism in general, the idea that we should pick a policy that leads to good results, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that complements and is compatible with a more, what I call a principled approach. And I think you can arrive at a principled approach by, by reason and rational thinking and by something like Hoppe's argumentation ethics and even by insights from the natural law approach. So I think that these things are all, um, they dovetail together. That, that's my take on it. Um, and how could it be otherwise? We're all talking about the same reality. So we should, we should come to the same conclusions. Um, Adam, how did Adam Thuin, how did IP get established in the US? What was the intent of the adoption and how has it been corrupted? Um, why have the timeframes for copyright and patent been reduced? Well, first of all, I already explained how it got adopted. It got adopted by basically inertia from the British system. Um, copyright clause in the Constitution, 1789. Then in 1790, one year later, the Copyright Act and the Patent Act. And then they've been with us ever since. And they have there's only been one legislative improvement to either law that I can recall in, in, in the entire country's history, and that was a slight expansion of what's called the prior use defense for patent infringement in Obama's uh, American Vents Act in 2011, I think. Um, other than that, every, every change always expands. It's like a ratchet, right? The terms get longer. The punishment gets greater. The scope of what they cover gets greater. You know, copyright used to cover ma uh, basically books, <laughs> and now it covers software and movies and photographs and um, music, <laughs> maps. Well, not maps, actually. Um, anyway, um, and the reason that, 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 um, that, yeah, you're right, that with the technological change being faster now, it, you would think that the patent terms and the copyright terms should be shorter. Like, we should have a shorter patent term for uh, for software, right? Because it, it, it gets overturned so soon, right? Then, then longer. And same thing for books and things like that. But instead, it's the opposite. And I think it's because um, um, with the, with the uh, information age, the technology age, technology and media and publishing, that's all gotten more and more big business and big dollar. So they've just used their lobbying power to keep expanding up the protection, expanding internationally by getting America to force these international agreements on other countries, uh, expanding the scope, more and more things covered by copyright, adding new and new IP laws like um, for semiconductor um, 
circuit board designs, boat hull designs, and then there's 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 constant clamoring to expand um, to add a new right for perfume for I'm sorry for for fashion designs, which hasn't happened yet. But all these things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And with the internet, um, the internet became the world's biggest copying machine, right? So it became almost impossible to enforce copyright um, on a widespread basis or, or perfectly. You can still go after the big institutional players because you can, you have a big target. You know, it's like if America gets nuked by North Korea, we know who to nuke back. But if if we if some terrorist drops a bomb in New York City, who do we nuke? You know, it's the same thing. We have all these mil billions of people who can pirate stuff on the internet, and they can't go after them all. So they send out strike down notices to YouTube, and they, you know, they sue Google if they uh, they do something wrong, and you know, and, uh, and they book publishers sue each other if they copy if they copyright it, but they can't stop it all. So they've gotten more and more desperate. So it's because they can't enforce copyright, they want to in increase the penalties and and uh, um, so that the people they do catch, they can send a message, you know, and hurt them worse. So uh, it's a it's a problem. I do think that here's my guess: um, the copyright term used to be 14 years, double uh, extendable once to 28 in the beginning. Then it became life of the author plus 50 years. Now it's life of the author plus 70 because, you know, the, the rumor is Disney lobbies Congress because when Mickey Mouse is about to enter the public domain, they they lobby for another change. And Sonny Bono did it last in the 80s, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act. Uh, and there's actually lobbying to make it 90 now, life of the author plus 90 and to make it retroactive, like people works that have fallen into the public domain in the last three or four years. Let's put them back into the public. Uh, let's put them back under copyright protection, um, which is probably unconstitutional. But. My suspicion is they've they've run out of steam. They will not be able to get another twenty years added to the copyright term. I think we're done, but I don't see it ever going down. That's the problem. Luckily, the internet lets us pirate, <laughs> and hopefully someday three D printing will allow us to um, to um, evade patent law by just ignoring it by just printing proprietary designs in our basements on our three D printers. So that's probably fifty years from now, but hopefully someday. Okay. I'm going to skip the next question because it's about IP. Um, Liam asks, are you in favor of decentralization on principle, or is there something like the incorporation doctrine legitimate? Should we oppose centralization in all cases, even if it's in the name of liberty? Are there any scenarios where more centralized power should che check a lower power? I have an article I wrote. Um, I think it's on the Ninth Amendment, Calvin Massey. It's on my website. You know, and I argued, look, I'm a libertarian first, not an American, not a constitutionalist, and I'm an anarchist libertarian. I believe in individual rights, and um, I think all forms of aggression are unjust and wrong. And that includes private aggression, which would be private criminals, um, which is not a trivial problem. That's a serious problem in the world. Always will be. Will always be a problem anyway. And then you have institutionalized aggression by the state, and that's a bigger problem because the states have so much power. Um, so the big problem is the state. So we have to keep our – as libertarians, we have to oppose all forms of aggression, but we have to especially oppose institutionalized aggression, especially by our own states if we're Americans, and especially by the US if you're anyone in the world because it's the most powerful one of all. Uh, and so to the extent the Constitution can be used – 
then there's nothing wrong with that. So I would say the Constitution has instrumental value. The Constitution is not libertarian whatsoever. It, it was it was it was a cover given to start the most centralist, powerful government in the history of the world. Um, but th to sell it, they did have to pretend to grant some rights and protect some rights. So there's nothing wrong with appealing to the Constitution to limit government power. And I believe in the U.S. case, because we have a federal system and we have a powerful central state, but we still have a federalist tradition uh, with vertical separation of powers and decentralization as one of our means of limiting federal uh, central state power. And because a central state is the most dangerous enemy to us, um, not the states, not the 50 states, um, I think that we should use the Constitution, if we can, to prevent the federal government from gaining more power. Um, and that means holding it to the words of the Constitution when it's convenient, and that would be, yes, I think the incorporation doctrine is legally and constitutionally complete bullshit. Uh, it's, com it's a complete uh, farce, just like Roe versus Wade was, to be honest. Um, now, does that mean that there can be nothing good that comes from centralization? No, everything is a trade-off. I mean, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, like let's say I'm pro-choice, which I, I kind of am uh, as a libertarian. Um, I think that it was the right decision constitutionally and legally, and also from a libertarian point of view, it was good in the sense that it helped to um, re respect federalism, which is respecting one of the limits the Constitution puts on the federal government, which is state power. On the downside, it did, re it did make abortion illegal again in several states. So there's always a trade-off. This is the problem with having governments. There's nothing is very few things are, are unambiguously good except abolishing patent and copyright, which is unambiguously good, and no one can complain about that. Um, okay, Brady, what's polycentric law? Are you in favor of it? Ah, it's just a fancy term some people use when they want they don't want to say the word anarchy. Uh, actually, it was actually one of my criticisms of Randy Barnett and the structure of liberty. He used that word. I thought it was unnecessary. I've never found a need to use it. Um, I just like to say anarchy. <laughs> um, Liam, uh, what would a libertarian court system look like? Is a common law system more – I'm at 45 minutes now. I don't know if I should go a little bit longer. I don't know if that's permitted. I'll go about 10 minutes longer. Um what would a libertarian court system like? Is the common law system more consistent with libertarianism than the current centralized system with a U.S. Supreme Court? Okay, so quickly, I wrote a couple of articles on this. One's shorter and one's longer. Um, the longer one's called Legislation and the Discovery of Law in a Free Society, and the shorter one is like a summary of that in the Freeman. Um, looking at Facebook here, see what Liam says, whether I can go a little bit longer. Okay, I'll go a little bit longer. Um, well… If you read that article, you'll get more more information. And I, I've done some speeches on this too. Look on my stephanthecello.com on my podcast feed. You'll see lots of talks on this. Um, but basically, the private law in the world, um, primarily, I'm going to skip over some great systems um, like the law merchant and canon law. But it was primarily the Roman law, and then the common law in England, and they were both in a in a large part decentralized legal systems. They weren't private exactly they were under the control of the government of the state to some degree but they were they were they were decentralized in the sense that you had a judge or a, or a, a, a jurist hearing an actual dispute or sometimes a hypothetical one in the case of rome but 
hearing an actual dispute between actual parties having a conflict and wanting a resolution to their problem. And the job of the court was to do was to find the fair solution, to do justice by doing the right thing. And to do that, they had to recognize tradition and custom and decisions of these courts and tribunals of the past, which people might have been relying upon in their decisions, taking into account reason and logic and fairness principles. So they, they, were, they were at least trying to do the right thing. They were trying to do justice. So over time, over thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of decisions, the law accretes and develops and is guided and develops a body of law. And then the scholars come in and they they reshuffle it and they systematize it and they criticize it. And then the judges take that into account. So you have this interplay and the, the, the great bodies of the Western law emerge, which is the Roman law, which is which turned into the civil law or the, the continental law today, and then the common law in England. Um, and these are largely libertarian in my view because they're, they're basically pragmatic approaches to solve disputes based upon scarce resources and real conflicts in the real world, taking into account practical um, solutions of the past and people's traditions and expectations and contracts and agreements and trying to do justice. It's not perfect. There's some mistakes, but it at least tends towards an improving system of a, a, a nice wide body of private law rules that people can use to um, organize their lives around. But then starting probably in the 1900s, you have this, this burgeoning of legislation as the primary means of making law. Um, naturally, first in the, in the civil law jurisdictions, which had adopted legislative supremacy when the, when the civil codes of the Code Napoleon and things like that in the 1800s, early 1800s were adopted. When they were adopted, the, co the Code Napoleon, the civil code, was a beautiful restatement of existing European law and Roman law principles as practiced in, say, France, um, private law. And it was a beautiful restatement by eminent legal scholars. But then it was enacted as law by the legislature. And like the first article says, legislation is the supreme source of law. So although the, 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 the body of the law was beautiful and largely consistent with our own private law principles of libertarianism, um, it enshrined the idea of legislative supremacy or legal positivism. And then this led to the burgeoning of like all manner of special legislations that have just dwarfed even the civil codes. So the bulk of the law in the civil law regimes is, is statutory law. And something similar started happening in the U.S. and in, um, um, in, in England in the, I don't know when, maybe the early 1900s, an explosion of legislation to the point where the common law has been increasingly submerged by a sea of legislation. So, you know, if you're a judge now, your job is no longer just to do justice. Your job is to find a statute that some bureaucrats wrote, read the words, and apply them, regardless of whether the result is just or not. So your job is just, it's not really a judicial job. You're just a functionary. One, one time, and, and by the way, this is even more, the, so even in the U.S., let's say, in, in England and the U.S., the, the judges, they still have a body of common law to develop, but they, they have to uh, obey the statutory law if it if it supersedes the common law, right? Because it can override it. So their job is, I would say, half judicial, half state functionary, right? They're a minister. They're not they're not a real judge. They're half judge. In the federal system, the judges are almost zero judges because there is no federal common law. The entire federal 
body of law is the Constitution, which is just a written statute full of ambiguous and vague and non-objective and contradictory terms and incompleteness, right? And the, the entire federal uh, code of uh, federal statutes, plus the entire uh, uh, administrative codes, you know, all the regulatory codes. Um, so the job of federal judges is just to read these words on paper that some bureaucrats wrote and interpret them. It has literally zero to do with justice. Um, Sometimes it, it happens to have the just if, if the if the constitutional provision like the First Amendment happens to be just, then they, they happen to be doing justice, but it's just by happenstance. Now, there's something called the Erie Doctrine in the US, and this was developed by the Supreme Court because there is no common law in, because the, the central state was an artificial state <laughs> which has no law and did not adopt the common law of England. So it's just an, it's an artificial state with made up law. You know, it's like it's, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons or it's like you know, it's like an association. So what they what they what they they said was when the when the I'm trying to remember the rule. This is from law school. I'm a little rusty, but it's something like this: when a federal district court or when a federal court hears a case with a dispute between I don't know people between uh, citizens of two states. So there's what they call diversity jurisdiction. Well, then the law they apply is the law of the state because they have no law of their own. It's called the Erie Doctrine. So a federal court in Pennsylvania. When they have to interpret a contract, they're going to say, what would a state court in Pennsylvania say? So we have to go look at the state law. They have to just import this law, but they can't really develop it because they're not state they're not state judges. So they can't like extend that. They can try, but then the state courts aren't bound by it. So they can't really be part of that process in Pennsylvania, in the common law courts in Pennsylvania that's developing the law. So they're just borrowing from that sometimes, just like sometimes the Supreme Court might say, well, we have a difficult case and – the Supreme Court in France one time um, decided a similar dispute this way. We're going to borrow from there. They're just borrowing. Anyway, so yes, a libertarian system would be um, decentralized tribunals, arbitral tribunals, something like that, uh, or courts. There would be no legislation, none. All right, five more minutes. <laughs> this is interesting. This is not my specialty. Dan Zimbiak. The U.S. is over $30 trillion in debt. Who is it owed to? Um, I don't – it's complicated. I don't know exactly the answer. I think it's – I think the government issues bonds in the form of treasury bills, and they promise to pay. And people, they buy those they buy those T-bills expecting to get interest and assuming the full faith and credit of the United States, assuming we're not going to go bankrupt. <laughs> um, this is why I think Bitcoin could be our salvation because – if Bitcoin, uh, people start flocking to Bitcoin eventually, then um, it's going to be hard for uh, anyone, to, for the for the for the government to sell their bonds, so they won't be able to deficit finance anymore. So as soon as Bitcoin emerges, my hope is that um, it will put the the federal government on a tight budget because they'll have to cut their budget by about 30, 40 percent right away. Um, Am I pessimistic? Joe, Joe, are you pessimistic in light of recent foreign policy developments? I have to say I'm an optimist. I think uh, I think we live in a good age despite all the problems, and I think it's better than in the past in many respects. And I think we can hope that it will get better primarily because of um, um, the Internet and, and the communication of knowledge. People, I, I think, are breaking out of this authoritarian mindset. They're not going to put up with it. I think uh, – 
um, you know, you see this in Iran and, and Russia. It's it's it, these these in North Korea. I don't think these regimes are going to be around like this in 30 years. Um, and technology keeps uh, uh, developing despite the hampering effect of the patent system and regulations and taxes. So we get richer every generation because the population grows and because our technology gets better and we can cumulatively add it onto what was already known. So our efficiency improves with every generation. And this allows us to keep being more productive despite the increasing basically taxation rate. Um, I think in a, in, a, in a sad way, it's given the government a reprieve. The government doesn't see the effects of their of their destruction, destructionist policies because the free market keeps throwing them a lifeline, throwing us a lifeline. Um, I'll, I'll answer one more question. The very last one, Zach Sklar's, what's your number one libertarian book to read? I have very eclectic tastes. Um, I mean, if you want to be technical, I would say probably Mises, The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science. That's my favorite book by Mises, um, but that's not libertarian, but it's in the Austrian tradition. So um, for fiction, I mean, one of my favorite uh, series was is the fantasy series by Stephen R. Donaldson called um, The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. I just always loved that. I used to love Narnia, too, as a kid, but uh, Thomas Covenant was just something that made a big impression on me. And as for nonfiction outside of Austrian economics, um, I don't know, one book that I just had a lot of fun reading years and years ago was uh, The Mind's Eye, not E-Y-E, but the letter I, The Mind, apostrophe S, I, by, uh, edited by uh, uh, Dan Daniel, Daniel Dennett and Douglas Hofstadter. That's a fun book about, um, it's about AI, but it's about the mind and consciousness and technology, things like that. Anyway, I'll call it an end here, and I, I, I thank everyone for their attention and their interest, and feel free to email me or contact me on Twitter or Facebook if you have any questions. But uh, And um, you can follow me there at NS Kinsella, uh, or my website is stephankinsella.com. Thanks, everybody.